0: Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you today, and I'm so excited about uh, talking with my two guests today that are truly um, outstanding in their field, if you know what I mean. My first guest is Jordan Rhodes. He's been on the show before. He has been a working actor forget this six decades and he's not stopping anytime soon he's an incredible guy who's done everything from theater to television to uh, commercials and everything in between and working on a, a series right now a reality series but just such has the gift of true joy energy and a life that is uh, what he calls the life of a blue-collar actor. And he has a book by the same name. Listen to the great stories that he has about working with the different people way back when and currently as well. Then we're going to be speaking with an amazing woman, Monica Kelsey. She has started something so incredible. She's from Indiana, and uh, she started what is known as the Baby Box well, more babies are now being safely surrendered into hospitals and, uh, firehouses. And they, it's done anonymously. So it's, it's really a remarkable thing that is taking off all over the country now. And she tells us all about it coming up as well. This is a show called The Way Home and it's brought to you by the wonderful people at Balance of Nature, Fruits and Veggies in a Capsule. To get started on your path of nutrition, like I have been able to do for the last 12 years, which has changed my life in so many ways, go to balanceofnature.com to get on your fruits and veggies on a daily basis. And when you do, make sure you put my name, Laura, into the promo code. That way you'll get 35% off your first preferred order and free shipping always. When we come back, Jordan Rhodes, the life of a blue collar actor. Don't go away. It's the way home.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura.
1: Well, speaking of welcoming back, um, there are some friends that uh, I've had such a good time with on the air that I just literally want to have them back so we can continue the conversation, so to speak. Imagine being an actor for literally six decades in so many roles that you almost can't even count, whether it be TV, film, commercials, theater, you name it, Jordan Rhodes has been a part of it and for so many years and he's still going strong. He's uh, he's like Benjamin Button. He goes backwards in time. He gets younger as the years go on. He has a great book, a lot of fun, called The Life of a Blue Collar Actor. And he calls himself a blue collar actor because, well, I'll let him tell you. Jordan Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us on the way home again.
2: Oh, Laura, it's nice to be back with you. It's, uh, it's great. And, uh, interesting that you're asking me to tell people why I'm a blue collar actor or why I'm one.
1: <laughs> yeah, explain. it. Do explain because I think it's a great concept.
2: Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something funny that'll lead into that. The other night I just noticed uh, here in watching TV, which I have, uh, my daughter had given me a prime video thing. And I saw that they were playing, uh, all of the series of 12 o'clock high. And the first time I did 12 o'clock high was but 19, I think, 66, I'm going to guess. And anyway, I thought, boy, this is going to really be funny because I have no idea. I didn't get to see the show at the time I did it because in those days when you were doing television, they played one show. And then if you were lucky, you got one rerun for that season. That's That's the way they did. You know, today... You can go on video, demo, whatever that is, and you can, you can always get them. You can see them. But I sat here the other night in my apartment <laughs> for, for literally, uh, about two and a half hours looking through these 12 o'clock hives, trying to see if I could find my little bit where I played a, I think my building, it blew me out when I saw my building. I, I must have had a heck of an agent in those days because mm-hmm. I had, um, I had first position on the, I think the second card. Jordan Rhodes as G.I. workman. So I was one of the G.I.s and I was telling them about a bomb that was in a building. But it was just uh, it was so funny to see that, because uh, I think I told you before, when I first got out to California, I started my career in New York uh, in the theater. And then, of course, in those days, there were a lot of television shows that were coming along. Uh, There were things like Mr. Broadway, The Defenders, The Nurses, For the People, The Reporter, and I got little parts on all of those shows, just, just small roles. I think on the, uh, reporter, which William Shatner was the star of that, I think I literally had, I don't know, maybe eight or nine lines in something. But in those days in New York, you weren't really interested in working in films. You, we were all, we were all serious of the uh, Actors studio, Stanislavski, Strasbourg, you know, we were yes. all young actors coming out of that thing. So um, when I, when I finally, when that all shut down here in New York, uh, all of the, I don't know what happened with the economy, but they really, all of those shows just stopped running here in New York. And a friend of mine said, why don't you go, go to California? So I did. I took a shot. I went out to California and got lucky, Uh, got out there in like 1964 and literally just got lucky and got a very small part on Peyton Place. You remember Peyton Place?
1: Oh, sure. You're dating me, but yes.
2: (laughs) We're dating everybody. (laughs) So anyway, I got a a small role on Peyton Place where I played a, uh, I was in a scene with Mia Farrow where she was in the uh, rehabilitation center and I was a guy that had, I don't know, been in an accident and I was trying to learn how to walk. And anyway, the uh, director was Eva Maria Saint's husband at the time. And uh, Jeffrey Hayden was his name. And anyway, he, uh, it was, it was an easy role for me because it was a physical role. I was on a walker and I was trying to walk. And so I worked up quite a sweat in the rehearsal and we were getting ready to shoot and it getting ready to do action. And the makeup guy came over and went to dab me down and Jeffrey Hayden, the director said, no, 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 I said, leave, leave that alone, leave that alone. And he worked hard to get that.
3: Mm-hmm. And so
2: I did, I did that little scene where I, I, in the walker, I did that and I got finished and I left and I thanked everybody and, Lo and behold, about uh, that was in December, and right around Christmas time, which is why I think they had given me that. Uh, I think that's why they had given me that. Just somebody knew me and said, you know, throw this guy a bone, and all of that. So then they decided that they were going to have a recurring character on the show, an intern. that was going to work at the hospital, and he would be in Peyton Place, the little town there, all the time. And so when they were talking about doing that, Jeffrey Hayden, God bless him. Uh, said, Hey, we had a young actor in here, uh, just a couple of months ago. He's, he's in a tree. He's really terrific. And in those days, Laura, if you came out of New York and you were, you had any association with what they were in those days, they referred to us as method actors. You were a, you were a method actor or you were a, a technique actor. I've never in 50 years, I still don't understand the difference in that. Because Mm -hmm. later I can tell you a very funny story about sitting in a something with Sir Lawrence Olivier uh, when he made his comment about what you do as an actor. But anyway, in California, the film business, they were just everybody was just insane about that. If you were, quote, a method actor, you come out of the studio and you'd work with Strasburg and uh, Stanislavski was your training and all of that stuff. So uh, this role came up and Jeffrey Hayden said, let's have him And to do it. So they called me in and lo and behold, I've been in California 20 minutes. And all of a sudden I've got this recurring role on Peyton Place as this intern, which, of course, I was thrilled to get in the beginning and realized very soon in these shows, all I was really doing was I was always the introduction to the scene. Uh, I would be sitting in the bar, having a drink with the bartender, and we'd be in a little conversation, and then the lead would come in and the actual scene would start, and then they would pan away from me and I would be gone. And so uh, this is blue-collar actor. So for me, uh, I did that for about two months, and then the third month I thought, uh, hmm, I got the scripts. And in those days they were doing, it was on three times a week, it started out in the beginning. It was more than that, but they—it was the only nighttime soap. It was the first and only nighttime soap opera at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, anyway, I looked at these—the next three shows I was going to do—and I saw really again I wasn't doing much. I'd had a couple of nice scenes. I had a wonderful scene with Lee Grant. I don't know if you remember her or not, but
0: uh,
1: yes,
2: Lee, yeah, she uh, in, in New York we were all crazy about her because, you know, she had been in the detective story on Broadway and she was a real actress actor. And it was so funny because, uh, I had this really good scene with her where I catch her trying to steal drugs uh, for her boyfriend. And, uh, I'm, as uh, this young intern, so I'm hitting on her trying to get a date with her. And before we did the scene, when I first met her, I said, uh, Miss Grant, I said, boy, I'm, I'm from New York. And I said, Is New York, uh, uh, we we're all in love with you. She looked at me and she said, Well use it, baby. Use it. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> yeah, so. that's the method part of the acting, isn't it? Right? That, you use the, your life experience and, and you bring it into your body of work. Um okay. yeah. but so I mean you that wasn't the only um soap opera you did. You were also in All My Children, The Guiding Light, Ryan's Hope. I mean, seriously. You've been in just about all of them. And the list of the people that you've worked with, uh, Jordan Rhodes, is is tr- it, it's just it it brings you back to what I, I would refer to now as the Golden Age of television. It was the time when you know, people that was their form of modern entertainment and um yes there was the theater absolutely and people in new york would enjoy uh, you know theater and such but you know for the rest of america back in the 50s and 60s and 70s tv was what it was all about and my goodness i can't even count I've, i'm looking at the list of of some of the shows and the people you've worked it with and it's in the hundreds so is that indicative of what a blue collar worker or excuse me blue collar actor is is it somebody who's just Someone who's been in the trade for their entire life. You get roles all the time. You don't necessarily, you know, turn into a George Clooney or something like that with, you know, f- films here and there. But you are a working actor for your entire life. And that's how you made your living.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're correct on that. I Prior to the pandemic, I would go out and do some of these lectures and I would talk to young actors. And what you just said is so true, because once I always try to tell the young actors when I talk to them that I'm not there to convince them to go into this business, and I'm also not there to convince them to not go into this business. I'm simply there to teach them that you do not have to be a Tom Cruise or Julia Roberts to make a living in this business, and that if you, you have to be dedicated, and you've got to be—really, you've got to be willing to work your butt off because— when you are the blue collar actor, another thing I tell them is that we're the people, just as you said just a moment ago, we're the people that people recognize the face. They don't necessarily know the name, but they recognize the face because in my case, they've seen me so many times in so many shows. So they, 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 they know you from that thing, but you're never really a star, even though I've had guest star billing uh, in television a lot. I've had some wonderful billing in some films. When I did the Indian Runner, which was Sean Penn's first film that he wrote and directed, uh, I have wonderful billing in that film. I have billing over Charlie Bronson, which to me was really something. And wow. over, over other people. Well, I had a huge role in that film, and I had worked with Charlie twenty years before in a thing called Mr. Majestic. But apropos of what we're talking about, being a blue collar actor. That's why I've always referred to myself as a blue-collar actor. In other words, someone that shows up, knows his business, knows the lines, knows what he needs to do, is willing to take direction from the guy, and really doesn't come in with any attitude. Because when you're a blue-collar actor, it's very seldom that you can make any decisions that change anything. Now, obviously, as your career goes on, like my career went on, I told Sean once, when we were doing um, when we were doing the Indian Roller, because I had such a big role, I was invited to the dailies. And for your audience that's out there is listening, the dailies are, when you're doing a film, uh, you really don't watch dailies in television because it's just too quick. You, you've got a week to do an hour show. But in a film, they're dailies. So the dailies mean that we go, and let's say Laura and I are working on a scene, and it's Monday, and we shoot that scene on Monday. Well, then on Tuesday, they have the dailies of that scene and I got invited to the dailies. And so I went to the dailies the first day and I sat in there at the dailies and it, for me, it just, it, it it didn't work. I think I've only heard a couple of few other actors, uh, you know, uh, Jack was maybe one that, you know, would say that, but I tried, when I didn't come back to the dailies and Sean asked me two or three days later, he said, uh, You're not coming to the dailies. And I said, no, Sean, I'm not coming to the dailies because if I don't like something that I see that I've done, I can't do anything about it. Because, you know, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise can come to the dailies and say to the director, I want to redo that scene. And they'll go redo that scene. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Right. But you don't have that that option. But let's just let's just uh, just for the fun of it, because I have your list in front of me. Some of the people that you've worked with over the years. Absolutely. Wonderful. Uh, Let's see. Like you said, Mia Farrow, Ryan O'Neill, Gregory Peck, Stacey Keach, Sam Elliott, um, Charles Bronson, as you mentioned, Gregory Peck, Michael Douglas, Gene Hackman, Jodie Foster, Dennis Hopper. James Garner, Stephanie Powers, Jill St. John, Nick Nolte, Leslie Nielsen, Carl Madden. I mean, it's just fun to read this. Patricia Arquette. Uh, It's just a beautiful thing. And as you said, part of being a blue collar actor, the reason why you get being asked back again, why you have 60 years of a portfolio behind you is you're the reliable one, aren't you? I mean, you're the one that like, you know, that guy said, hey, let's get him because I remember him when he was here, just reliably did his thing and he was a likable guy. And I have a feeling. So that's part of the reason why you were able to work in the business for so many years. Plus let's not mention, you know, when you studied the way you did coming from New York theater and at that time, the new school and, and um, you know, Stanislavski and all of that. Cause I went to theater school also. I, I have my BFA in conservatory theater from Adelphi university on Long Island in New York. And when you come from really a, a hot, Intense a program of of theater. You really, it's a level of learning to act that I think never leaves you, and it really is an asset because you're not just a one trick pony. You can do just about, and when you're a real actor, you can do anything. And and so you obviously have you've done every different type. Um, I will even say that um, I saw you recently do the eulogy for very uh, mu- dear mutual friend of ours. And it was so engaging and so fun and so funny, and I thought, "Wow, this is this is the type of life this guy has led, and for so many years." And I I don't want to ask how old you are, but it really astounds me at at the level that you function at on a daily basis. Tell us, are you are you acting on it? I know that you're doing some radio now, which I want to get to some of your new things that you're doing. But are you still doing some acting?
2: Well obviously we just came off of the pandemic. So for two and a half years, entertainers just didn't work at all. And now we're back and ready to work, but we have the situation to where SAG and AFTER we're on strike. And yes. this is the first time with the writer's guild and SAG AFTER. This is the first time, Laura, I believe since 1960 that the yes. uh, WGA and SAG AFTER have been on strike at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, no, I haven't been doing very much because there hasn't been very much to do. But what I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up, what I'm getting ready to do is that you may from my resume remember that for five years, I toured in a play that I created and co-wrote with Ken Vos, who really his big thing was Grease Lightning. Ken's a wonderful writer. But he and I wrote this play about Ernest Hemingway called Papa, the Man, the Myth, the Legend. And uh, Lynn Moore Rose, who is my wife, she played all five women in the play. And we actually, after touring for five years, we were getting ready to shut it down because the economy kind of took a dip and we really couldn't get what we needed to get for the play. I couldn't make people understand that it wasn't that I didn't want to go out for $2,500 to go do a performance. It wasn't that. It was just I had a full set, a trailer, a lighting director, a director. We just couldn't take the show out for less than $7,500. And people couldn't pay that. So when they couldn't pay the $7,500, we couldn't take it anymore. So friends came to me and said, you really can't let this show die. You need to film it. And I said, oh, okay, great. That's terrific. Film it. Where, where do we get the money to film it? And lo and behold, we got the money. They came up. And so we did a performance in a 1,500-seat theater. Uh, it's called the Odell Williamson Performing Arts Center in Supply, North Carolina, where we'd actually rehearsed the play when we, before we put it on the road, but we did it to an invited audience, uh, a full house, filmed it with six cameras. And so we made a film production, a live film production. It's not like we normally do film. It's not, we're not cutting, stopping, starting anything. We did a, the full play from the beginning to the end and we filmed it. So I got talked into putting it into a festival here in New York City. I mm. entered into the international independent film festival and people had to talk me into that because I kept saying it's not a film you know we we filmed a live performance of a play took me six months to edit it by the way because it was filmed with six cameras and you'll appreciate this you're in the business You, you know how this works a friend of mine said well Jordan he said why in the world didn't you use a switcher and I said use switchers he said yeah I said I was on stage doing the role (laughs) how am I going to do switchers? So so I had to have six cameras shoot the entire play, and I had to go into editing and do that. Anyway, my story here is that I have a meeting on the 8th, uh, which I believe is a week from this Thursday, I think. I have a meeting with Peter Martin, who owns the Triad Theater here in New York on West 72nd Street, and we're going to have an evening of Hemingway. We're going to screen the play, of the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, and we're inviting producers, investors. And, of course, they'll sell tickets to the people that come there. Uh, he's asked me to do the introduction. And then, of course, I'll do a Q&A afterwards. But we're mm-hmm. doing that. And the hope is that some of these people that have been telling me here in New York, if you ever have a, you know, you put a production on or whatnot, we'd love to come see this. I'm trying to get it on Broadway. And what I have to do is I have to make them understand I'm not trying to do it anymore. I did it for five years and we stopped doing it about 11 or 12 years ago. And right now, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just too long in the tooth. I wouldn't like to direct it. I really would like to direct it because obviously I know the play better than anybody can come in and do the play, but we need a name, you know, for Broadway. I've contacted Liam Neeson, who has written me back with an email very much. He hasn't decided if he wants to do it yet or not. He said he was never a fan of Hemingway. But so that's one of the things that I'm working on. And then we're getting ready to do a um, this is really a spec deal. Uh, apropos of us talking here about blue collar actors, I'm going to do a reality series pilot about working class actors, which to me is the blue collar actor. And I'm going to take the audience on this reality series. I'm going to take the audience around New York to places like the Actors Studio, Theater 80, uh, the Triad, uh, there's this wonderful theater that's in the basement of a church, and I want to show the audience what it's like. What actors that are just working actors, blue collar mm-hmm. actors, where they perform. They may get a television role, but then they'll come back and they'll do they'll do a play over here in the Trinity Theater, which is mm-hmm. right up the street from where I live, almost 57. And I'm going to interview uh, five actors. Uh, and they're all working-class actors, and that's what our pilot's going to be. I don't have a clue whether it will sell or it will get picked up, but we are going to make the pilot. So.
1: I love it. I absolutely love it. I think that would be great. And, you know, right now, especially with the strike, you know, I think there's a lot of con- conversation around everything from, you know, how we consume media these days these episodics and, you know, are people getting the residuals and the money that they deserve for the, you know, what these companies make on some of their series. And then secondary, and maybe not even secondary, but even a first concern is the whole advent of AI and how it's going to affect a working actor. Um, I know that in radio, we talk about it a lot now. And in the voiceover business that I'm in also, we talk about it as well. So uh there's a lot of that going on. I th- personally think that would be an incredible series and really rich because it is a lifestyle that until or unless you do it for a living, you, you can only imagine what that's like. But from from your perspective of someone who did it. For literally decades, I mean, y- you you have a perspective that probably almost no one else has at this point of what it is and and the fact that you're still in the game, I don't again, I'm not gonna ask how old you are, but you're still <laughs> in the game. and as sharp as they come, and with so many ideas, it's it's really exciting. and i'm just I just think it's wonderful. I think you're an inspiration, and uh, again, seeing you speak. At our friend John Adams' uh, memorial service, celebration of life, the richness with your experiences and and how you've lived your life, and how you you it, I think you see it through the lens of uh, joy and humor, and I think that's probably a lot of what's kept you in the business where others fall away because it's just too much of a grind. You've stuck it, stuck to it. Jordan Rhodes and you you're a a huge success you may be a blue collar actor but you're a huge success and a star in my book and I I just want to say thank you good luck with the series we're going to have you back on at some point to tell us how it's going and uh, to see if your Hemingway project is also getting off the ground because I think there is an appetite for that type of thing the live theater um, productions now have become way back in vogue So you're right in there with that. And you did it before it it got hot again. So congratulations to you. And I want to remind everybody that they can find your book, The Life of a Blue Collar Actor, wherever they get their great books. The Life of a Blue Collar Actor, Jordan Rhodes. Oh, my friend, big hug to you all the way there in New York. I'm I'm missing uh, the Big Apple, but I, I sure love being in the Midwest here. That's for sure.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's nicer out there. And by the way, if they want to get the book, and it's great for young students or anybody, because it really will give them an inside track on what it's like. It's gotten some wonderful reviews. Just go to bookbaby.com or bookbaby bookshop. That's a great place to get it.
1: Great. Bookbaby.com. Fantastic. Jordan Rhodes, lots of love to you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today on the way home.
2: It's my pleasure. And uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you. We'll visit again. I'll let you know how the projects are going.
1: I'll hold you to it. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's
1: Laura. Well, when is hot too hot, especially when it comes to animals? Sadly, in Indiana, we just came off of a story where Eight out of 18 German shepherds perished while being delivered from O'Hare Airport to somewhere in Indiana, and it could have been avoided, but it was also just a tragic circumstance. I want to know everything there is, how we can keep our animals safe, especially in the temperatures that we have had recently all over the country. My guest is Rachel Bellis. She is the associate director of local affairs for people for the ethical treatment of animals, also known as PETA. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me.
1: It's such an important topic, isn't it? We we often talk about, and rightly so, about children or babies being left in hot cars and the tragic toll that takes. but we also have to think about animals who are, are left in cars a lot. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people know better and keep the air conditioner running and things like that. But not everybody has a car that's equipped to do that uh, while someone goes into the supermarket or whatever. What tell us what is happening in the realm of what we know of how we can keep animals safe and when is hot too hot? How do you know?
3: Well, every year PETA receives dozens of reports about dogs, cats, and other animals who have suffered and died from heat-related causes after being left outside or uh, inside a confined vehicle. Um, This year alone, we've had 69 heat-related deaths, and it sounds like from the case that you just mentioned, it could be higher. We know that the actual number um, is more because a lot of these deaths do go unreported. That's why PETA always reminds people, especially during the summer months, never leave your dog in a car, in an unintended vehicle. Never keep them chained or leave them outside um, when it's really hot. Always make sure that uh, they are inside where it's safest and coolest for them.
1: I recently um, saw a horse. We live in Amish country here in northern Indiana. I recently saw a horse that was tethered so tightly to a tree that it couldn't either put its head down to eat grass, nor was there any water nearby. And I went to my friend's house, um, you know, and three hours later came home and it was still tied to the same tree and it was extremely hot. And I I'm mad at myself now because I wish I had called the police because I just found that to be so cruel. Um It's not just dogs. It, it's many animals in s- situations where you see, a dog in a hot car or um in another situation or even chained up outside which a lot of dogs around here are um is it a right step to call the police or is there someone else that we should be able to to call in an emergency
3: well if you see a dog in a hot car definitely call 911 because that cars are death traps for dogs um, and even if you have the windows rolled down, some, they can still die very quickly from heat stroke because the temperatures get so high so quickly in, in parked cars. So call 911, take down the make, model, color and license plate of the call, of the car. If you're in a shopping center, go inside the store and try to have the owner paged. Um, but honestly, if you, if the owner isn't coming out or if law enforcement is taking too long and the dog is in real distress, do what you have to do to make sure that dog gets out of the car. If you see a dog in your neighborhood that is kept chained or kept outside 24-7, if, uh, call law enforcement. Absolutely. If you see an animal, whether it's a dog, a cat, a horse, any kind of animal in distress, do call law enforcement. Call animal control because that is what they're there for.
1: Um. And this particular story um, that just came out this re- recently about these dogs that were being transported, they were going to be trained. These are all German shepherds, 18 of them. Apparently, the animal control had been called and then came. Now, I don't know the full story, but what we reported this morning was that they came. The driver was giving animal control a hard time. It wouldn't let them take the cages away. And so they left and then the dogs died. So. I'm, you know, at what point are you allowed to just say, no, we we have to do this, you know, for the sake of saving the animal? So does saving the animal always come first, whether you're breaking a window to get into someone's car or taking crates away from a truck that's broken down with all these animals in it?
3: Well, I mean, we never want to encourage anybody to do something illegal. Now, in the case of a dog in a hot car, if there's no one around and if law enforcement is taking a long time, and if you can't find the owner and you see that that dog is in distress, then um, uh, yeah, people need to do what they what they have to do to make sure the dog gets out of there. Um, There are certain states that have laws written in the books that say that that people won't be prosecuted if they if they do rescue a dog from a hot car. Um, most states, cities won't prosecute people, because, but they will charge the owner with cruelty to animals. Now, the case that you've mentioned with these German shepherds, I'm not aware of the case, so I, I don't know the details, um, but I'm, I'm shocked and saddened that law enforcement would, or animal control would just leave the dogs in, in that kind of situation. But um, I, this is the first I'm hearing about it, so I... I don't know if there were other uh, circumstances that would l- make animal control just leave. Okay, so, but, it, but there are
1: a lot of laws there that says that people can intervene in a situation. How do you know when an animal is in extreme distress because of the weather, because of the heat?
3: Um, well, some, some symptoms of heat stroke are heavy panting, lethargy. Some dogs will have a dark tongue vomiting, disorientation, seizures, lack of coordination. If you see a dog that is experiencing this, then get them to a cool area. Um, try to bring their body temperature down, give them water, pour water over um, their coat, not freezing cold water, just tepid water is fine. And really that dog needs to get to the veterinarian as soon as possible.
1: Okay, and I've also read that some of the breeds that have an especially hard time in the heat are the ones with the the shorter snouts, say your Bulldogs or your French Bulldogs, your Pugsleys. Um, Tell us, you know, what's with them? Like, how are they affected even more?
3: Well, they have been bred specifically to have that flat face. And their um, noses and their snouts are, short, are so short and pushed back so far against their skulls that there isn't enough space to accommodate normal anatomical features. So for us, it's like breathing through a straw. And that's what these breeds go through every day. They have a lot of health issues. And so any kind of overexertion, exercise, excitement, stress, they can um, really be so dangerous for these dogs, and they are twice as likely to suffer heat stroke as other breeds.
1: So much to know and to to watch out for. Thank you so much, Rachel Bellis. What's a good website for people to get more information on how heat affects animals?
3: Please visit PETA.org, P-E-T-A.org. There is all kinds of information, whether people are interested in finding out more about these breathing-impaired breeds like the Pugs and the Boxers Um, or about heat-related injuries, what can happen, and tips for keeping our animals safe.
1: Thank you so much. Such an important topic. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. I'm so grateful to have Monica Kelsey here. She is the CEO and founder of Safe Haven Baby Boxes in Indiana, but soon to be in a state near you. You have the most probably gut-wrenching, compelling story I've ever read um, on your website there, which uh, talks about how you came to be um, through a very difficult and tragic circumstance, but which probably was the premise for you then doing this that's changing lives. Um, Would you mind telling a little bit of your story?
4: Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, uh, I was adopted Uh, I always knew that I was adopted and so it was never a secret and uh, growing up, uh, I always wanted to meet my biological mother and I had that opportunity when I was 37 years old and that became the best and the worst day of my life because um, that was the day that I learned the truth of why I was placed for adoption and uh, I'll take you back to August of 1972 uh, to kind of fill you in on the story. Uh, And in August of 1972, a a young 17-year-old girl was brutally attacked and raped and left along the side of the road. And this, of course, was when abortion was illegal in our country, Uh, even in the cases of rape and incest. And I'm not here to debate abortion. I'm just stating the facts. And uh, this 17-year-old girl was was strong enough to press charges against the man who had raped her. And he was arrested and he was charged. And if that wasn't the worst of it, when her life was finally getting back to normal, um, she finds out she's pregnant. And she was hidden for the remainder of the pregnancy and then gave birth in April of 1973 and abandoned her child uh, two hours after that child was born. And, and that child was me. So, you know, I stand on the front lines of this movement that I've, I've created across America uh, because I, I want these mothers to know that there is options for, for their child. You know, they don't have to um, do something that's not safe. And, uh, and so I've come up with a program that allows women anonymity, but still keeping their children safe. And uh, and so I founded Safe Haven Baby Boxes uh, based on
1: my own beginnings. It's an incredible, incredible story. You um, were abandoned at a hospital, correct, back in 1972? In 1973, yes, at a hospital yes. in
4: Montpelier, Ohio.
1: Okay, so so when when your biological mother had you she took you to a hospital at least so you had a chance and you were safe and um that that feels like it's the best news but but from that so safe haven baby boxes for people who don't live in indiana and have not really heard of them tell us exactly how they operate it's it's almost like they're they're hit miracles um, in communities and i'm so grateful to know that you are expanding beyond the state so uh, tell us exactly how they work.
4: Absolutely. So the baby box is an extension of the already existing safe haven law. And every state in America has a safe haven law where a parent can walk into any hospital in America, hand their, their uh, child, their uh, newborn child to a worker there, turn around and walk away and no questions asked. And so I, I built upon that safe haven law, that safe haven statute, and said, well, let's give these parents uh, the same protection but let them do it anonymously. And so I created the safe Haven baby box that basically we cut a hole out of the side of a firehouse or a hospital. Cause those are where medical personnel are. And we slide the box in from the outside in. So when a mother walks up to one of our safe Haven baby boxes, all she has to do is open the door An alarm sounds. It doesn't, it's not sounded to her. It's silent to her. Um, she places her, her unharmed newborn in the box she shuts the door and she walks away. There are three alarms on this box that are not connected to each other. So if one was to fail, another one would pick up. So we've tried to make this as, as fail safe as possible. Um, and also the door locks after a baby is placed inside. and That's one of the safety features as well. That allows a parent to know that no one else is going to walk behind them and take this child out of this box, except the people on the inside of the building who are trained to do so. Um, we, uh, the average time for infants inside our baby boxes, so from the time mother places baby in until firefighters pull this baby out, is the average time is a, a, about two minutes. So wow. it's it's pretty incredible uh, the technology that we use. To ensure the safety of these babies, and these boxes are heated, so it's not like they're going into a cold steel box, which I've heard people say before. These are medical bassinets. These boxes are heated, um, and they alarm medical personnel on the inside of the fire station or the inside of the hospital. And so these babies are picked up extremely quickly and given a chance that they don't that they all deserve.
1: Exactly, and so uh, so the firefighter or the medical personnel takes the baby out. Where do they go with that child, obviously, to get uh, examined? Yeah, so uh,
4: a lot of people don't know this, um, but uh, 99% of our infants that come through our baby boxes are not born in hospitals. Uh, We've had babies that have been placed in our boxes with placenta still attached, cord cut, not clamped. I mean, these are are your at-risk babies that are going to go in a dumpster or they're going to go in a baby box. And so these babies have to get immediate medical care. And so the paramedics at the fire station or the nurses at the hospital, they do immediate medical care, and then they transport uh, if it's a fire station to the hospital for a doctor's evaluation. Once that happens and the, the doctors stabilize the baby, uh, the Department of Child Services in most states gets involved at that point and then finds a forever family for this this child. Now, some states also allow for adoption agencies to take custody of these these children, so they are adopted very uh, very quickly, which is um,
1: actually just uh, warms my heart. Yes, it's absolutely incredible, and I and I imagine they are. I mean, there is a great need for adoptable babies. Uh, there people are looking for them all the time, and you got the idea for the safe haven baby boxes. When you on a trip to was it South Africa? Is that where you first had the idea? Yeah, I got the idea. I was
4: walking into a, ter- in a into a church in Cape Town, South Africa, and it's interesting because I believe that Christ puts you where you need where He needs you. And that out of a hundred churches in Cape Town, that was the only church that had a baby safe, and that happened to be where I was speaking. And I was so intrigued by this baby safe. I was asking all types of questions, and I. I asked them, you know, uh, do women really use this? And they had saved seven infants that year. And the people who, um, you know, the, the people of the church are the ones who adopt these babies. And so it's just a beautiful way of, of making sure that uh, his children are taken care of. And it, it's, it, I, I was just inspired, absolutely inspired.
1: Absolutely. And, and came home to do it here. Now, uh, as I said, you started in Indiana. Where are Safe Haven Baby Boxes being implemented um, in the country right now?
4: Well, currently we have boxes in 10 different states, and we passed legislation in five more states. And then there's a few states that we're launching in that doesn't have legislation that we don't have to have legislation in. So we'll probably be in 20 20 states by the end of the year. And uh, on Wednesday, I actually blessed the 145th baby box in the nation in Hobbs, New Mexico.
1: Wow, that must feel just surreal and, and incredible to be doing this work. Um, how do people hear about Safe Haven baby boxes? Do you go around the country speaking about it to people? I do. I'm actually
4: on planes pretty much every week going somewhere. I, I train first responders. I train hospital staff. I go into high schools. That's probably the most important, and then we also have a social media presence. You know, I'm not a I was I was never a TikTok fan, um, but the people who are watching TikTok TikTok are the people that need to hear my message. And so I, I launched in TikTok back in two, 2021, and the first video we posted got like 29 million views. Wow. And a video we did two months ago, it's it's almost at 50 million views. And so we're educating people that that there's not even a baby box around. And, and it's interesting because I, you know, this past week has been just just amazing because Hobbs, New Mexico, became the 145th baby box in the nation. I was there blessing it. And then a few hours later, I got a call that a baby was saved in one of our Benton baby boxes in Arkansas. And so it, it, the, 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 uh, the note that was left with this infant in Benton, Arkansas, this mother drove seven hours to keep her child safe and placed in one of our boxes. And so I, I always wonder, well, how did, how did you hear about us? You know, I mean, you're seven hours away from the closest baby box and it's social media. Social media is huge. social
1: media. Absolutely. When it's used for good, it's, it's a miracle and life changing. And so grateful that your message is able to spread that way. Monica Kelsey, you obviously you were here for a reason and the way you came into the world, although the beginnings felt or were tragic Um, They have turned into truly the most beautiful story on earth. And what is the best website where people can read your story and find out how to maybe get involved?
4: Uh, They can go to our website at shbb.org, or you can just type in Google search safe haven baby boxes and our website will come up. There's lots of ways you can support us. There's lots of ways where you can help and advocate in your community. And we'll walk alongside you as you do that in your community to educate others.
1: An amazing blessing. Thank you so much. Monica Kelsey, Safe Haven Baby Boxes at shbb.org. Much love and gratitude to you. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura.
1: Well, that was so much fun and inspirational as well. And uh, we always end the program on what we call the high note. That would be with a good news story, something that Jim Cleefield, the guru of good news, has gone out and found during the week. All right, my friend, what'd you get us?
0: Well, let's let's talk about, I guess the theme for this week will be loving teachers. How about that? Because I want to tell you the story about a gentleman who has been teaching in Phoenix, Arizona at Arcadia High School for 25 years. Uh, his name is Mr. Guy. Not just any Guy. The guy... Mr. Guy, Clayton Guy, that is, and he is a beloved teacher at that school. He's been there for a quarter of a century, and his students just absolutely love him ever since he started teaching on day number one. He's usually jovial and happy. I guess it would be akin to something. I'd like to use the phrase players coach. I guess I can use that phrase. He's just wonderful to be around. The students just absolutely love him. He's just very approachable. But anyway, recently in the spring, uh, he had uh, an issue in his family, and uh, something was stressing him out. He really wasn't himself. He wasn't his happy self. He looked like he was stressed. In fact, one of the uh, students, Parker Bond, was thinking, something's off with this guy. He's just just not right. Well, he finally leveled with his students and told them, sadly right now, that his wife, Angel, has had some chest pains and had to have heart surgery recently. And uh, this is a very difficult situation. He had to take some time off to go speak to the surgeons. And then here's the other difficult part. While she was in the hospital in the recovery process, and I didn't realize this, he has to be the nurse to administer the pills while she's in the hospital, which surprised me. I thought maybe somebody else will be doing that job. So, I mean, it's been very, very hard on him. And not just that fact, but as we certainly all know, and one of the students pointed this out, that heart surgeries, even with insurance, very expensive, right? Well, they decided to do something about it. They all rallied together with the community and uh, other classes and decided to start a GoFundMe page to help Pay some for those expenses related to that heart surgery. Well, they reached their goal at the end of the month, I'm happy to say, of $10,000 for Mr. Guy and Angel. And they are just so grateful. In fact, one of his ex-students says uh, he's one of the most compassionate, loving teachers I've ever had. And and this is a way for these people to give back to them. These students, they love him. And so uh, God bless them. And Angel, uh, I hope she has a speedy recovery. But again, just a wonderful thing those students did to show their love to somebody who has been there for them so long for those 25 years.
1: You get back what you give out, and it sounds like he truly is one of the great ones. I think we've all had a teacher in our lives that really affected us in a beautiful way. I know I do. My fifth grade teacher, my second grade teacher, uh, these are people that I still, to, to this day, they, they I know they changed the course of my life for the better. Just with their love, their attention, their encouragement. And I'm sure you guys, Bob and Jim, you've had the same thing. And everyone listening has probably had a teacher, if not more, that has truly blessed them Yes, on, fact, on many levels.
0: And if I may, I'd like to give a shout out to Bob Hall, Coach Hall. He was my JV football coach and history teacher. He was the teacher of the year the same day I graduated. That made that day so much more special, and we're great friends. And he's definitely at the top of my list.
1: I love it. How about you, Bob? You have what special one?
0: I I couldn't narrow it down. There's many of them I
2: felt uh, quite a connection to. Um,
1: Oh, see, that's great. As it should be, there really are more great teachers out there uh, than not. So we, we thank them, we salute them, and this wonderful class did a great thing for their teacher and his wife. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today, per usual, on The Way Home with Laura Smith. It's something that I, I hope you enjoy listening to as much as I enjoy creating, along with my two friends here, Bob and Jim. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Elton. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Stay safe, happy, God bless. We'll see you next time.